Today's reading is from 1 John 2, verses 7 to 14. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, from the beginning, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for all that you give us, all the blessings you've poured out on us, Lord. We pray for your forgiveness as a sinful people. We pray that you would help us to live a holy life that is pleasing to you, Lord. We pray that you would give us ears to hear now, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by taking us back to the 6th of June, 1944. I'm sure some of you know that's D-Day. Now, I want you to imagine, if you will, being an infantry soldier. You're about to get onto your launch boat. There are thousands of other soldiers doing exactly the same, all with rifles. You look around you at all these military personnel, all this military might, and you think, who could stand up to such an invasion? This is going to be okay. As you start going towards the Nazi-occupied uh, French beaches, you look at these French beaches which have been bombarded by both the Navy and the Air Force and actually you feel quietly confident. However, as you get closer, things very quickly change. Machine gun fire starts zipping over your head. There's explosions all around you. Other boats which are completely full of soldiers explode and blow up or sink. People are dying all around you. As you land, things only, only get worse. As you get out of the boat, there are dead bodies all over the beach. It's littered with dead bodies. There are men screaming in pain. The machine gun fire is relentless. You see some of your closest friends die right in front of you. Who could, who could question you for curling into the fetal position, throwing down your rifle and getting behind one of the large anti-tank structures and giving up and saying, I'm not doing anymore? You're now completely paralysed with fear. But you think you can see someone that you, you recognise, someone you've seen before. You look up, and at first you think you must be delusional with fear, because standing over you is Field Marshal Montgomery. He says, we've already won. You look at him in complete bewilderment. What you see around you is not matching with what he's saying. You start, you start talking to him, but he interrupts you, and he says, we've already won. Pick up your rifle and fight. Others around you look just as confused as you do. But as you turn to look back at the field marshal, this time he draws his sword from his belt, 
He holds it up in the air and this time he shouts it. We've already won! He charges at the enemy. You feel this fear starting to seep away from your body and a surge of adrenaline rushes through you. You stand up, you pick up your rifle and you go running after him. Before long, you start shouting it as well. We've already won! You see, in today's passage, particularly in verses 12 to 14, this illustrates what John is doing. Now, a lot of John's audience that he's writing to would have been like our infantry soldier that have heard the gospel some time ago and with lots of other people around them, they gave their lives to Jesus. I'm sure initially there was this feeling of invincibility. However, I'm sure as time went on, it didn't last very long. Persecution was rife. And then to make matters worse, these false teachers had started springing up from among their own number, causing confusion and all sorts of problems. It was, it was becoming increasingly difficult to know what a person should believe. So in these verses, John gives his troubled flock truths that if understood and believed, will give them the strength to stand up and continue to fight. Now, I don't think I'm alone that when I say in my Christian faith, I'm often completely overwhelmed. I'm confused. There are times when God feels very small and the world seems very big. I feel like a failure. I feel like I'm only just hanging on. Well, thank goodness, John is not just a theologian with his head up in the clouds. He is a loving pastor who knows his flock and he knows what we need. He doesn't pull any punches in his letter, as we've seen already, in telling a Christian how we should live. We should love like Christ loved. We should live like Christ lived. We should love our brothers. We should obey God. All of these are completely unachievable in our own strength. So what does John do? Does he tell us just to get on with it? No, he takes a brief pause in these three verses. He gives us three gospel truths that if truly understood and believed will flood us with assurance and wash away our doubts. My aim this morning is to dwell on these three gospel truths in the hope that they will remind us who God is, who we are, and give us a firm assurance and the motivation we need to strive on in our Christian walk. So if you would please open either your Bibles or your service sheets and let's look again at 1 John, and I'm just going to reread verses 12 down to verse 14. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, I think some of you may well at this point be thinking, I'm not a child, I'm not a young man and I'm not a father, so I'm not listening. Well, before I lose you completely, let me reassure you that in using this language, John isn't just speaking to these physical groups. John is breaking believers down into spiritual groups. You see, the children are those who are new to the faith. 
The fathers are those who have a mature, well-established faith, and the young men are those who find themselves somewhere between these two groups. So actually, these are truths for all believers. So let's begin looking at what John says to the new believer. Verse 12 says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. So the first truth which John gives is, is your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Now I said earlier that these were truths that if we understand and believe will cause us to have assurance and wash away our doubts. Well the question we must ask ourselves then is, how do we know if we really understand and believe this first truth? Well let me begin by asking you all a question. Is this a truth that bowls you over? Is this a truth that makes you want to drop to your knees and praise God for pouring out such an outrageous gift of grace? Because if it doesn't, we haven't understood it properly. To begin exploring this truth, we need to ask ourselves, what is it that I've been forgiven? Now, if we think that we're generally not too bad and generally quite a good person, that sin is just basically a bunch of misdemeanours, then forgiveness is never going to feel like a very big deal. I think it's going to feel a bit like getting out of a parking ticket. It's nice, but it's not life-changing. As a Christian, we need to understand that we haven't been let off a small fine. We've been freed from death row. And we've not been freed because some new piece of evidence has come up which shows we were innocent after all. We were absolutely banged to rights. We deserve to be in death row. We deserve to be there because from the very beginning, we've lived in complete rebellion against God. We've told God in our thoughts and our deeds that we're not interested in his rules, that we want to be in charge, and that we wish he was dead. Did you know that up until 1998, in this country, the punishment for treason was still death? If the punishment for treason against an earthly monarch is death, what do you think the punishment's going to be for treason against a cosmic king, the creator of the universe? Friends, we must know that we deserve nothing but God's wrath. And yet here we are reminded that if we repent, he shows us his mercy. That's why God's forgiveness is so incredible. That's why this is the first truth that John reminds us of. And do you know what? As we explore it more, it gets even more incredible. You see, not only does every Christian journey begin with forgiveness, it's only able to continue because of forgiveness. Now, the English translation says, your sins have been forgiven. This is past tense. So there's a danger here of uncertainty creeping in. We can begin to think, well, I was forgiven, but I've sinned since then. Am I still forgiven? Well, thankfully, the Greek doesn't leave this level of uncertainty. John doesn't use the past tense. He uses something called the perfect tense. I've read this week, the perfect tense speaks of an action in the past resulting in an ongoing state of being. Let me be as clear as I can. Something happened in the past which was so significant that it not only continues to affect the present, it affects the future as well. Do you see what this means? God's forgiveness is not just a one-time event. It is ongoing. If you're a Christian, you have been forgiven and you remain forgiven. 
A lot of our problem with assurance comes from not properly understanding this. We can begin to fear for our salvation each and every time we sin. Well, let me say it again. If you're a Christian, you have been forgiven and you remain forgiven. When we sin, we damage the relationship that we have with Jesus. However, we don't jeopardise our salvation. If we were only saved by our ability to stop sinning, I'm sorry to say none of us would be going to heaven. This is echoed in the second part of the verse. Look at the end of verse 12. What does it say? Your sins have been forgiven on account of... What, what would we put in here? Your ability to stop sinning? Your loyalty? Your name? No, it's none of those things, is it? It's his name. Now, names in the Bible have got significance, particularly when we talk about God's name. His name is a reflection of his character and his personality. So essentially, John is saying here, you've been forgiven not because of who you are, but because of who God is. And because God is both holy and loving, because he's both just and merciful, he had to forgive us in a way which would not, which would not contribute, uh, compromise any of these attributes. Now, this is a phrase I really dislike. You hear it all the time on television and it drives me crazy. But the only way which God was able to forgive us by being true to himself was through the death and resurrection of Jesus. On the cross, God's justice and mercy, his holiness and love are all displayed in perfect harmony. So to summarise then this first point, the first assurance John gives the believer is that if they repent, they have been forgiven, that they remain forgiven. And that forgiveness is not based on what we do. It is based on nothing but the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right, should we see what uh, John has to say to the young men? If you look at the end of verse 13, it says, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then at the end of verse 14, it says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So twice John says, you have overcome the evil one. That is the devil. John again shows us here how well he knows and understands his flock. I think often when people become Christians, there is a certain level of spiritual euphoria. As they reflect on who God is and what he's done for them, they are happy to give up sins which have previously caused problems. The trouble is that familiarity begins to creep in. This is reflected in their lives. These sins which we were happy to give up begin to tempt us again. Each time we give in to sin and to the devil, we slip further and further from the intimacy that we knew with God. Sometimes we can stray so far that when we look back to God, he can look very small and our sin and the devil can look very big. Well, just like the field marshal in my opening illustration, here John remedies this by saying to us, you've already won. You've overcome the devil. I think it's helpful here to even take this illustration one step further. A lot of historians will tell you that D-Day is so significant because really it was the day that the Allies clenched victory over the Nazis. You see, there was still a lot of fighting left to do, but the invasion of occupied Europe by so many troops meant there was only one outcome which was going to happen. 
that Hitler's rule was coming to an end. Our victory over the devil is very similar. The moment a believer puts their trust in Jesus and repents of their sins, they are freed from Satan's grip. Christ on the cross was the great serpent crusher. And it was through his death and resurrection that ultimately we overcome the devil. However, although this victory has been won for us, there is still a fight. The devil may have, defeated, uh, may have been defeated on the cross, but we must continue to resist him until either we die or Jesus returns. John tells us in verse 14 that the key to standing up to the devil is strength. He describes the young man as being strong, not physically, but spiritual strength. Look again at verse 14. John gives us a clue to where the young man's strengths come from when it says, and the word of God lives in you. They grow in strength largely because the word of God lives in them. Now God speaks in lots of ways to us today, but the main way he speaks to us is through the Bible. So what must we do? Well, we must read it. We must battle to understand it. Here's the big one. We must obey it. We must pray that the Holy Spirit would apply it to our lives, that he would use it to encourage and convict us. We must meditate on it and apply it to our lives daily. Each and every time we do this, God, through the Holy Spirit, will bring his word to life in our hearts, which will give us the strength we need to resist the ongoing attacks of the devil. So to summarise point two then, John gives the young men an encouragement and an instruction. He says to them, Christ has won for you. He has defeated the devil. Now pick up your Bible and fight. So finally then, let's have a look at what John says to encourage those who are spiritually mature, the fathers. Again, verse 13. I am writing to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. And then this exact phrase is repeated in verse 14. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I think this can come as a bit of a surprise to us. Perhaps we expected something a little more, I don't know, a, a little deeper for the spiritual fathers. Especially when we consider that actually in the first part of verse 14, John says something very similar to the... Um, to Christian children. He says, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. So clearly, knowing God is not just something which is reserved for the spiritually mature. It's something experienced by the new Christian as well. So what is John trying to say here? Well, when we become a Christian, we can say with full assurance that we know God. Not just know about God, but actually know him. This is probably one of the deepest, most profound mysteries in the entire universe. That a sinful man who has lived in complete rebellion against the holy God is able to know him and have relationship with him. It's beyond our comprehension. And yet, sadly, it's a truth which is all too often lost on us. Can I suggest that, again, one of the main problems we have here is an over-familiarity we think we have some sort of right to know God. We make God so small in our minds that approaching him doesn't seem like a big deal. Sometimes I think that we approach knowing God 
a bit like knowing a puppy. We're happy just to stroll up and pick up this puppy. Now, it's nice holding a puppy, but it's not special, is it? Because anyone can go and pick it up. It's not going to have any issues if anyone picks it up. I think to appreciate how incredible it is that we can have a relationship with God, we need to understand that approaching him is not like approaching a puppy. It's more like approaching an attack dog. Now, when I go to a police station at work, I love it when there is a dog van parked in the yard. It's because it brings so much entertainment. Now, the dog handlers always leave the boot open, but the dog is still secured in a cage so the dog can get some air. Now, what's always entertaining is when someone who's quite new to the police comes out and you'll hear something like, oh, look, a police dog. Should we go and say hello? And you're thinking, yeah, please, please do. They'll wander up to the back of this dog van and when they get within a few feet, this enormous man-eating beast hurls itself at the back of the cage door. The whole van starts shaking. The, the whole yard is filled with barking and gnashing of teeth. This person who's gone up to the back of it will jump 10 foot in the air and scream. And then what's really good is they turn bright red because everyone in the yard is pointing at them and laughing. <laughs> you see, the thing about police dogs is that actually if you speak to the handler and get introduced properly, they can be really friendly. But we make a grave mistake if we think that we can just go up and approach them on our terms. If we ever forget that God is like this, can I suggest that we turn briefly to Exodus chapter 33. This isn't printed in your sheets. Um, you're welcome to look it up in your Bibles. It's not a long section. If you'd like, you can listen to me read. I'm going to be reading Exodus 33, starting at verse 18. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. He's talking to God here. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see my face and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. We must remember that God is so holy that a sinful creature cannot survive in his presence. If Moses were to have looked at God's face, he would have died. It's no different for us. On our own, we do not stand a chance of even approaching God, let alone having a relationship with him and knowing him. And yet, one of the greatest turning points in the Bible, a verse which we looked at in Life Group not too long ago, Ephesians 1, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. Because of Jesus, everything changes. When we repent and trust in him, he takes away our sin, and what's more than this, he clothes us in his righteousness, which means we are able not only to stand before a holy God, but we can actually know him. John is reminding all believers 
that because of Jesus, they can know God. What better encouragement for when we're feeling weary and burdened? You know God. You don't just know about him. You know him intimately. The maker of the universe, the holy one. The one who is in control of all things. This truth reaches right to the heart of Christianity. Being a Christian is not about head knowledge. It's not about doing right things. It is about a relationship with our creator. Truly, if we are able to grasp this fact, it will change us forever. It's so important that we understand that knowing God is a relationship completely instigated by him. It is only because of the but God. And rightly, this relationship has to be on his terms. However, we do still have a part to play. Like any relationship, if we want that relationship to grow, we must invest in it. And the more we invest in knowing God, the deeper our relationship with him will get. The more spiritually mature we will become. I think this is why John gives this as an encouragement to the fathers. That's because the very best way of measuring a person's spiritual maturity is not how well they know the Bible. It's not how well they serve at church. It's how well they truly know God. You see, the more time we spend with him, the more we obey him, the more we rejoice and worship him, the more knowledge of him will grow and the more our relationship with him will grow and that relationship will deepen. Knowing God is a journey that begins with becoming a Christian, but it continues all of our lives. When I was 18, my dad gave me this book. It's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He wrote inside it, David. It must be serious because he never calls me David. (laughs) Spending time getting to know God is the best investment you can ever make. I think this is a really helpful way to put it. You see, knowing God is both a gift from God, but it's also an investment. Listen to the words of the author. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, more delight, more contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and he knows me. That's a quote there from Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Knowing God is what we were made for. It's the only thing in life which will truly fulfil us. And if you spend your life trying to know God better, you will have invested in your life in the best way possible. My challenge for us this week is to cling to these three truths that John's reminded us of this morning. So firstly, your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. So remember, that means you have been forgiven, you remain forgiven, and that forgiveness is not based on anything you do. It is based on nothing but the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Secondly, you have overcome the evil one. 
Christ has defeated the evil one for us on the cross. Now pick up your Bible and fight. Thirdly, you know God. You don't just know about God. If you're a Christian, you know him. You have a relationship with him. Now, you may already be on a spiritual high this week, and if that's you, that's fantastic. And I pray that you would rejoice in these truths as the week goes on. However, you may be like our infantry soldier in my first illustration. You may be feeling like all is lost, looking around you thinking, this is not what I signed up for, and this doesn't reflect what I thought I signed up for. Well, if this is you, allow these gospel truths to bring, bring peace to your heart. Meditate on them and allow God to show his strength in our weakness. Let's finish by celebrating this relationship that we have with Jesus. Let's turn to him in prayer. If you're a Christian this morning, then let's spend a little time in private investing in that relationship. Bring to God whatever is on your heart. If you're not a Christian here this morning then I urge you to consider whether it's time perhaps for you to embark on a relationship, a relationship that will bring you more contentment, more joy and more delight than anything else this world has to offer. So if we spend a short time of prayer on our own, at the end of that I'm going to ask John to come up and pray for us and he's going to pray specifically as well for what's happened in Manchester and our sister church up there, praying that things would go well for them. So please spend some time now in prayer reflecting on these three gospel truths. So let's pray, please. We thank you, Father, for your love for cities. We think of Jonah sent to the pagan city of Nineveh to uh, preach a message of repentance and we thank you that you spared that city because of your grace, as we've heard just now, and your love. Not because they deserved it, but because you chose to give them mercy in response to their repentance. And this morning we want to pray, uh, again as Peter prayed earlier, for Manchester. We pray that you would have mercy upon those who this week have uh, had to uh, weep over the bedside of someone who's dead in their family, someone who still this morning stands by the bedside of a wounded child. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to bring that comfort that only the gospel can bring. We pray for the for Christian medics and nurses in Manchester. We pray that you would give them grace and kindness. We pray for pastors who this morning are seeking to speak a word of wisdom and gospel encouragement uh, in their congregations. We pray that you would help them to be wise and truthful and full of compassion. And we pray, Heavenly Father, most of all, that uh, the Muslim community in Manchester, as it reflects upon these events, as it sees the response of true Christians, that many would turn from a religion of works to the grace of the gospel found only in Jesus. Have mercy, we pray, upon the city of Manchester. Have mercy upon those uh, Egyptian Christians who have seen slaughter in their streets again 
this last week. Have mercy, we pray. And in this troubled world, send forth the gospel with fresh power. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.